You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. High school girls, Ryan Philippe plays a private investigator and the dad of the son to whom these girls are coming to, to see. I think I'm getting this close to right. Anyway, along the way, the girls go missing. And the dad of the boy has interest. He's a private investigator. He starts looking into it. Spoiler alert. But he finds out too much, far too quick, and is killed in the first episode. It is one of the the biggest shocks that I've seen in a TV show. I didn't expect the the most well-named actor in the show not to make it past the first episode. That part of the show was was frustrating on, on one level, but it actually sucked you into the show too. And it sucks you in because in, in my mind, it was really the, the beginning of the end, right? You saw the, the things and all of a sudden were just snowballing out of control and you're, and you're sucked in. What's going to happen next? How are they going to, how are they going to catch this guy? Who's going to step up? You know, and all these questions start rising up. And I think something similar is happening, happening here. Of course, this isn't a stupid TV show that one loses interest in a few episodes later. But yet, this is obviously a, a pivotal moment in the gospel story. Things are serious. Jesus has been in, in some tough situations leading up to this, but the, the point is now, we start reading things like, The high priest is suggesting that Jesus be killed to save the country. The leaders, right? The the council, the Sanhedrin, is following their lead to to want to put him to death. We read that Jesus no longer walks openly among the Jews, but he goes into the wilderness. In other words, Jesus goes into hiding for a time. He's absent. The people start to wonder where he is and if he's even going to come to the Passover feast. And to top that all off, the Jewish leadership was openly telling people that they needed to tell him if they knew where he was so that he could be arrested. I mean, killed, right? They're lying to the people. Their plan was to kill him. This is the beginning of the end. Or to be more accurately, the beginning of the end, which is actually the beginning. And like the show, but in this case, the reader is left to wonder, how is this going to end? So let's just back up and walk through this text. So we know that by the time Jesus came to Bethany, there were a lot of people in Bethany there to give their condolences to the family of Lazarus. In fact, when Martha comes back to tell Mary, who was in the house, that Jesus wanted to see her, the house was full of people who were grieving with her, and these same people that were in the house grieving with her followed her to the tomb to be with her as she mourned. So we read that many of these people Many of these Jews that had come to Mary to, to mourn with them, who had followed her to the tomb, many of these believed in him. 
Now, of course, we've talked about this before, that Jesus' actions, this sign, this resurrection of Lazarus had a purpose, and that purpose was to elicit the belief of those who were present. So the purpose for which Jesus performed the sign was accomplished. Don't miss that. And John makes sure to note that almost in passing right at the onset. And this is the reason. Because the passage is going to take an ominous turn in the form of a plan to kill Jesus. So why does John point this out? Why does he point it out almost in passing that many believed, but then some went and told the the Pharisees? It almost comes across like some believed, many believed, but then there were others who were tattletales and wanted to give the religious leaders the goods on Jesus. The reason that John points out that many believed is that he doesn't want the theological truth to be lost in what follows. And the theological truth here is that God has a reason for everything that he does, and he always accomplishes his purpose. Isn't that a great comfort? That God's action in your life, even if you don't understand it, or even if you don't like it at the time, that God always has a reason for what he does, and he always accomplishes his good purpose. Always. That's the theological truth here that should not be lost as we move forward. Because it's, it's pivotal, right? Everything that happens is happening according to God's plan. Now, back to the others that ran off and told the Pharisees. We're not really told why they did it. John does make it clear that it wasn't those who believed that went and told the religious leaders, but others, perhaps though, and we can give them the benefit of the doubt, perhaps they were not trying to get Jesus in trouble with the Pharisees, perhaps, and I think this is quite possible, perhaps they were looking for the Pharisees' approval. Perhaps they were looking for the Pharisees to give them the the go-ahead. These were looking for permission to follow Jesus. And they thought, if the Pharisees know that what Jesus did, that he raised this guy from the dead after four days, that the Pharisees would change their minds about Jesus. And if this was the case, there was a great flaw in their thinking, wasn't there? They thought that they needed the religious leader's permission to follow Jesus. The truth, his claims, the signs, his teaching, all of these things wasn't enough. They still needed the approval of the religious elite. But whatever their reason for going to them, the sign of raising Lazarus from the dead made it to the Sanhedrin. It made it to their uh, agenda. Now this was a, a group of 70, 71 probably, if you include the high priest. So that the Pharisees were just part of this group. And they couldn't take action against Jesus on their own, so they they brought it to the council, the Sanhedrin. Now, here's a couple things that you need to understand about the Sanhedrin. First of all, it was the the Jewish ruling court, but it was under Roman control. Basically, this was the Jewish ruling court, 
But the Romans controlled everything that happened. So they had power to rule to a certain extent, but their power and authority only went so far, only as far as the Romans would allow. The Sanhedrin was a a judicial court, a legislative body, and the high priest was functioned as the chief executive. And this gets a little bit complicated because the reason that the high priest was the, the CEO, as it were, is because the authority of the council was said to be theocratic. In other words, God was ruling through that body. So the, the question comes then, if this, is a, if this is a theocratic thing, the question then becomes, who makes up this group of 70? Well, there was a lot of people, a lot of different people. Chief priests, the priests, were, were, there were a lot of friends and family of the high priest, of the chief priest. There were a lot of Sadducees on the council. In fact, more Sadducees than Pharisees. The Pharisees were a minority, but they did have influence. There were elders and influential landowners. So what was certain here is that there was a great mixture of people and there was a great mixture of theological views represented in this council. And I I think that's really important because in this great mixture of theological views, they all agreed to kill Jesus. For instance, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in a future resurrection, but the Pharisees did. So when Jesus said earlier to Martha that Lazarus would rise again, and she says, I know that he will rise again because of the resurrection on the last day, that's something that the Sadducees wouldn't have believed. But the Pharisees would have. And that's a big theological difference, by the way. So this issue of Jesus is on their agenda. And they ask in verse 7, in verse 47, What are we going to do? Basically, they were asking, what have we been accomplishing in the way that we've been handling Jesus so far? And the answer is that they haven't accomplished anything. Jesus is still doing signs. People are still believing in him. People are following him. They make this clear in their statement. I mean, what we've done so far isn't working. Now, the fact that Rome is in control of this group, even though they do not like it. But this is a reality that the, the power and the freedom that this group has is only because Rome is giving it to them. So the threat here is that people will follow Jesus and Rome will get the idea that Jesus is a catalyst for a Jewish rebellion. The more people that follow Jesus, the more people that start believing, the more people that that call him the, the promised Messiah that has come to deliver them from oppression. At some point, it's not going to really even matter what Jesus does anymore, only what people say. And Rome would hear this kind of language, and Rome would squash it. They would put an end to it, or more specifically, Rome would put an end to the power and authority the religious leaders enjoyed. They were, their power, their authority, their structure, their system, their way of life, what they had was being threatened. Look at verse 48. If we let this go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. 
So this group is afraid that Rome will end the authority that they have as the Sanhedrin, as this ruling, governing body. But they're also afraid for the nation. What about everybody? If the, if the Romans don't like this, they could oppress us even more. Now, what should have happened here? I mean, this is, this is, this is interesting. What should have happened here? Notice, notice at the end of verse 47, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. What is funny here, not funny haha, but funny ironic, is that Jesus' raising of Lazarus isn't in dispute. Catch that here. The fact that Jesus performs signs, teaches with authority, all of these things isn't, isn't a problem. I mean, they're not the issue at hand. So what is the problem? I mean, they, they, they don't think that Jesus is a charlatan that they got to take care of. They essentially admit that, that he's doing these things. He's healing people. He's raising the dead. And these things are getting the attention of all the people. The people are following him. And it's going to get the attention of the Romans. And that is not going to be good for them. That is what they were saying. But isn't it interesting that Jesus' signs to not even, Jesus' signs don't even spawn the question about reassessing their position toward Jesus. Maybe we should reassess. Maybe we should take a step back. They were willing to admit that Jesus is doing these things, that people are believing and following him, and they're not concerned that they, have, that they may have gotten this wrong? Let me just take a minute here and challenge you a little bit. If you're confronted with the truth of God's word, but you're unwilling to change your position, then you are in sin. We're studying the subject of, of hermeneutics or interpreting the Bible in our central district continuing education class. And one of the things that we're, we're coming to and hammering over and over at the onset of this is that there are assumptions that we bring to the Bible. We might even think that we have good reasons for believing these things. But over time, and the more we understand the Bible correctly, it sheds lights on, it says light on these things, and we are shown to be in error. And what happens a lot of times is that people... They double down in their error. For instance, let me give you one radical example. Matthew Vines wrote a book several years ago now called God and the Gay Christian. And it was, it was wildly popular. Why? Because what Vines did is he went through the passages that spoke of homosexuality in the scripture and he offered other interpretations that allowed for it. And the problem here is that Vines himself was a homosexual and looked for ways to interpret the Bible that conformed to his behavior. I see little difference here between what the religious elite were doing in dismissing Jesus and his claims and in what Vines did in his book in overlooking the truth in their minds to save the nation. 
When we're confronted with the truth, we do not make a way to justify ourselves going forward in sin, but in humility, we admit that the Bible is of such authority because it is God's word that it demands that we conform to it, that we repent, that we change our belief, that we change our behavior, and we conform to its teaching. I mean, just think for a moment about the ramifications of both of these. The direction, the decision here of both the Sanhedrin and Vines. By overlooking the truth and choosing the path of sin and rebellion, of each of these had a a tremendous impact on the people around them. The religious leaders had a tremendous voice, a tremendous following, and their actions had a disastrous ramifications in the end because we know that in the end they will accuse Jesus of blasphemy. They'll say that he deserves to die for that. And many will believe them. Many will follow them. And many will spend eternity in hell because they followed those teachers. Those teachers that said, don't believe him. How many people struggle with sexual sin and are convinced, are convinced or convicted by the truth? And then they read a book by Matthew Vines or others, and and then they just double down in their error. They double down in their sin because they're believing what they want to believe and following the lust of their flesh. How many will suffer the consequences because sin is being relabeled as not sin anymore? This is why the Bible puts teachers in a category where they're held more accountable. Because what people teach people, they're accountable. Because people are going to follow them. People are going to listen to them. And if people are justifying their own sinfulness and their own rebellion because of what a teacher says, the consequences are disastrous and eternal. So then Caiaphas, the high priest, now he was the the high priest from 18 to 36 A.D., Before him was Annas, and Annas still had a a lot of influence. Notice that the text says that he was high priest that year. It almost sounds like he was in a position for that year. They just chose him to be the high priest for that year, when in fact he had been in that position for some time, 18 years. Now, without getting too far into this, I think that this was John's way of, of saying something like, that faithful year when Christ died or he was the authority that made this decision. He's drawing our attention to the fact that that decision was made this year, the year that Christ died. We're going to see that same phrase come up again and again in verse 51, uh, and then in chapter 18, verse 13. So the point here is that Caiaphas was the high priest, and he led and that prescribed plan that he led with was followed. And because of that, he was culpable in the death of Jesus. Of course he was. He was responsible. 
He was the high priest that year. It fell on his shoulders. This is clearly seen in verse 50 where Caiaphas continues, Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, right, oh my, you're saying, you can see the double meaning there, can't you? Let's just start with the point the high priest was making when he said that. Basically, Caiaphas was saying that if Jesus were allowed to continue, then the Jews their future would be in jeopardy. The the future of the nation. The the Romans would not stand for this revolutionary, so it would be better that Jesus died, that his revolution was squashed before the Romans got fed up with it. Before the Jews who followed Jesus picked up arms and revolted against the Romans, and the Romans in turn enslaved the Jews or something even more drastic. Right now, the the Jews were oppressed, but they knew that things could get a lot worse. So their solution? Kill Jesus. The alternative, they thought, was more drastic than that. That they would lose everything. Jesus was, in Caiaphas' mind, the scapegoat. In fact, that's a good way to put it, because the wording here in the original language is extremely sacrificial. It's pointing our attention to the sacrificial system. In fact, he was doing that on purpose. He was justifying what he was doing. We need to make a sacrifice. We make sacrifices all the time in the temple, he's saying. In other words, we just need to do it again in a different way. In his mind, Jesus was the sacrifice in order to save the nation and, of course, the leaders of that nation. Now, in verses 51 and 52, something interesting happens here. Again, basically, John is telling us how he understands these words. We said before that the thing that John does often is give uh, commentary, as it were, on the situation. This is why red-letter Bibles are a little bit misleading, especially in the Gospel of John. Sometimes it's difficult to, to know where Jesus' words end and John's commentary begins. This is the case in John chapter 3, I would contend, that verse 16 in chapter 3 actually is John's commentary on what Jesus had previously said. But it it really doesn't matter because it's all the word of God. So if you have the the words of Jesus in, in red letters in your Bible, that's fine. Just don't set those words on a higher pedestal than the rest of Scripture because you can't set God's word against itself. Basically, in our text, John sees the double meaning just as as we did when we read it. Listen to what he says here. He says, He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So John here is saying that when the high priest spoke this, he was saying one thing, but God was saying something else. He was saying that they needed Jesus to die to save them. He needed to be the the sacrifice in order to save the nation from the hands of Rome. God was saying something else. God was using the high priest and showing the high priest to be a pawn in the divine order of things. 
what the high priest meant for evil, God was using to accomplish his purpose. Right? The passage in Genesis chapter 50 should ring in our ears. What Joseph's brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. Something similar is happening here. The death of Jesus is a great tragedy. But at the same time, it was the way in which you and I are redeemed. It is how God dealt with our sin. It was horrible. And that Jesus was, from a, from a human perspective, he was senselessly murdered by people with a personal agenda. But at the same time, this was God's plan from all of eternity to, to redeem hell-deserving sinners. What was meant for evil was actually for our good. God always accomplishes his purpose. So when Caiaphas spoke prophetically, what was, he, what was his prophecy? What was he prophesying? Don Carson lists a couple ways here. He says, first, Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. Notice something here, and that is that both Caiaphas and John believed Jesus' death to be substitutionary in nature. According to to Caiaphas, either Jesus had to die or the nation would die because of Rome's iron fist. If Jesus died, then Rome wouldn't. He was sacrificed. The flip side, if Jesus died for the nation, it would remain. In other words, it is his life or ours. We need to make a sacrifice. That's what they were saying. John, on the other hand, wants the reader to think of something beyond the current political situation. He wanted them to think of Jesus as John the Baptist did, as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, certainly John's point here, when he says Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, that the the nation would be saved. He's not saying every single person in the nation is going to be saved. John wasn't advocating some sort of universalism. Just go to the next part. In verse 52, here he speaks of gathering into one the children of God who are scattered. Right? There are some questions there that we'll get to, but certainly John's point isn't that God will gather or save all of the Jewish people through the death of Jesus. Just as John the Baptist didn't mean that Jesus would take away the sin of everyone in the world. But that is how he introduced Jesus to us. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Certainly John isn't suggesting that everyone in the world is going to be saved. We talked about this a while ago, but let me just reiterate. What we said then was that God's love for us was demonstrated in that he sent his son into the world and to die for the sin of every person that would place their faith and trust in him. Anyone in the world, if anyone believes in Jesus, they will be saved from their sins. Anyone in the world, it doesn't matter if one is a woman, a man, a slave, or free, a Jew, or Gentile. Anyone that comes to faith in Jesus Christ, he will be saved. I want you to notice something else about what John says here about this prophetic statement. He says that Jesus would die not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. 
Now, from a Jewish perspective, the scattered children are Jews that are living outside of Palestine. Jews of the Despera, they're called. And they will be gathered back to the promised land. Now, there are some Christians that would see this as a reference to to, to physical Jews that would come back and live within the borders of Israel again. I don't think that's John's point here. Remember, the double meaning here has to do with the death of Jesus for the nation. So it's talking about the substitutionary nature of Jesus' death and what that accomplished. So when it comes to John's meaning, the question becomes, who are the real children of God that are scattered abroad? And what does it mean that they're scattered, right? There's, There's two parts here. Who are the real children of God, and what does it mean for them to be scattered? Christians here picked up on this pretty quickly in church history, what John was saying, and it was clear to them right away what this double meaning meant. And that is that the real children of God here are those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who trusted him alone for their salvation. We talked about this in the book of Romans when Paul says in Romans chapter 9 that not all Israel is Israel. What he is saying there is that there are Jews. There are physical Jews and there are true spiritual Jews. And the latter are Jews by faith in the promise of God. This is why Paul goes back to Abraham, the father of the Jews, so to speak. Right? Our father Abraham had many sons. I won't sing it, but... And it makes it clear that he was justified or made right with God by faith. Abraham is the father of faith. The promise of God was to bless the seed of Abraham and the Messiah would come from him. And this is where many of the Jews were confused. These thought that they were right with God because they were physical descendants of Abraham. But true Israel, the Israel of promise, are those who trust God's promised provision. And now we know that promised provision's name. His name is Jesus Christ. The children of God here are children, not by natural descent, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And the second part of this is that These are scattered abroad. Well, I would suggest that there's a a, a spiritual meaning to this as well, a double meaning. There are children of God who are all sorts of different sheep in different sheep pens waiting to be called by the shepherd. That's the language that Jesus used in John chapter 10. The good shepherd calls his sheep and they know his voice and he will call them from many different sheep pens. Not only one. I think this is the point here. In other words, it was in Jesus' death that his many sheep were gathered to himself. Sheep in many different sheep pens that were scattered all over. We shouldn't miss the imagery in that Jesus is gathering his own, or he's calling his own, right? Our our minds here go back to Jesus calling Lazarus from the grave. He called Lazarus to himself, spiritually speaking, and we said this last time that this is what happens whenever a lost sinner is saved. Jesus calls them from death to life. He takes what was lost, what was dead, what was worthless, and he gathers them to himself, and he says, now you are my child, you are mine. I want to point out another thing about this prophecy from Caiaphas. What God was saying, listen to the words of John here. Again, he says, he prophesied that John would 
or that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Notice that phrase in the middle there, gather into one, into one pen. Go back to John 10 again. Just look for a moment. I'm thinking of verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So here in chapter 11, we have a very similar statement. But here, notice that it's tied directly to the death of Jesus. This is so important. In our world today, this truth is being attacked from about every single vantage point. Outside the church, inside the church. Jesus died in order to create one people. And these are God's children. This is why he died. How does Jesus gather all of his sheep into one pen, into one fold? He dies in their place and he calls them to himself and they respond to him in faith. But do not miss this. These then are one. They're one people of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, Paul says that because of the death of Jesus Christ, we do not regard one another according to the flesh any longer. We're one people. We're not separated. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells the, the Christians there that they were once far off. But because of the death of Christ, they have been brought near. And he goes on to tell them that the dividing wall of hostility that divided them is now broken down. That God is creating for himself one people. And make no mistake, what's been called wokeness, both outside and inside the church, is antithetical to Christianity. It says that people are divided because of color, because of their skin, because of socioeconomic status or some other so-called minority status. Wokeness wants us to look at one another within the church through the, the godless lens of oppressor versus oppressed. And this is not Christianity. Christianity says that God is doing something far different. That God is calling people from every category that you can imagine. He's calling straight, gay, poor, rich, white, black, whatever sexual identity you can think of, whatever ethnic group that is out there, every walk of life. He's taking people from every single one of those categories and he's making for himself one people. Woke ideology in any form is not Christianity. When we let this ideology come into the church, what happens is the same thing is when cancer invades healthy cells of a body. Division happens in the life of the church, and division is cancer. The true and healthy church is unified around the one that died for them, that made them one, that gave them new life, that old things have passed away, all things have become new. It is in Christ that we are new creatures. And then we live according to that new nature. Our lives reflect who we have become inside, that one people. 
So the, the group of 70, the Sanhedrin, adopts the, the plan of the high priest to kill Jesus. And just like any other large group, there's no real secrets. The word gets out. Apparently Jesus became aware of it. He retreated to a small town some 12 miles away from Jerusalem, far enough to be safe from them, but close enough to be able to attend the Passover. When Jesus was gone during this time, the text tells us that people were looking for him. Let me just say in closing this, that there are many people who are looking for Jesus today, and a lot of them are looking in the wrong places. They're not looking for the Jesus of the Bible. They're looking for a Jesus that's made in their own design, a Jesus that fits their program, who will meet their preconceived needs. My friend, if you are looking for Jesus, do you know where you can find him? Broadly, you can find him in the scriptures, right? The Jesus of the scriptures. Any other Jesus isn't the true Jesus. The, the scriptures are where we learn of Jesus, where we see him, where he points us to the Father. We do not find Jesus outside of the scriptures. We find Jesus as he is presented in the scriptures. But then in a more narrow sense, if you want to find Jesus, if you're looking for Jesus, look to his death and ask the question, why did he die? And I would suggest that you're going to come to the conclusion that he came in order to save the lost and spiritually dead. He came to save you, and he did that on the cross. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.